0: Good morning everybody, I'm thankful to be alive, I'm thankful to be in church, I'm thankful to know that by the promises of our Lord in his book that we are much more than two or three gathered and therefore we are gathered in his name and in his presence. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know this morning that God is here with us, among us, speaking to us, encouraging us and God has a word for you today so let's take our bibles and be finding paul's letter to the colossians if you're not already there colossians right in the middle of your new testament near the end of your bible if you need a pew bible there's one in front of you here at the nine mile campus this morning and we'll be on page 924 make it very easy to find it and so whether you have a bible printed like mine or one that you need to power up we're in colossians chapter one last week we began a new Series of messages in our fall emphasis, Christ alone, and uh, to talk about the supremacy, the power, and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. A necessary stop is Paul's brief but powerful letter to the Colossians. It's great to welcome everybody to Hillcrest this morning, whether you're here at the Nine Mile Campus. Or over at our Spanish Trail Congregation, we welcome all of you this morning, and perhaps you may be somewhere else tuning in uh, to our live online broadcast, either at our website or on Facebook Live, and we welcome each and every one to this time in God's Word and worship uh, today. I want to speak to you for a few minutes this morning on the fruit of the gospel. Well, we were away, one of our favorite places that we visited this summer was the high Rocky Mountains of the American Northwest. I'd never been, Judy and I kind of have on our bucket list right now. As I realized the other day when Pat sent out an announcement for 55 plus people that I'm now one of those at Hillcrest. And so, you know, we got some things on our bucket list. We're kind of on these national park kicks. And uh, so we were at Glacier National Park up almost on the Canadian border and just astounding, the beauty and the power. One massive monument of rock after another. One day, this 55-plus old man went on a 14-mile hike in one day, and I made it. Couldn't get out of bed the next day, uh, but I made it. We hiked nearly every day, and many times we gravitated to the summit, if I could use that expression, and it was a wonderful high. But you know, there's a lot of rock out there. The thing that I realized as we would walk alone amongst all this rock and barrenness was in the midst of that, there was the beauty of incredible life. Floral life, grass life, beautiful fields among the barren places, animal life. Derek, my son-in-law, and I, as we finished a hike one day, got within 12 to 14 feet of a grizzly bear, came up out of the tall grass. My prayer life has never been more powerful. <laughs> but it was a majestic animal, literally no further than here to the front pew. So we encountered all this beauty among all this barrenness. You look at a picture of Grand Canyon National Park, and it's just nothing but rock. And yet you hike down into the Grand Canyon and around the Grand Canyon and you'll find some of the most beautiful forms of life imaginable. You know, as God's people, we live in what the Bible calls a barren and lifeless and corrupted world. The world is a dangerous place. It's a barren place. But the reality is all around us as the people of God, we find incredible signs of life wherever there is the presence of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. In the opening verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians, we find the great apostle communicating that very thing to a group of God's people who were thriving and growing and increasing and multiplying in the barrenness and isolation of the Greco-Roman lost, corrupted world of the first century. And today, as we continue looking at our introduction to Paul's letter to the Colossians, we come to verse three, and an incredible voice of praise and thanksgiving for the life that Paul hears is taking place in the dry, barren, desolate, spiritual world known as Colossa. Let's read it together beginning in chapter one of Colossians and the third verse. Everybody with me say amen. as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Father, we pray for your spiritual presence, that love in the Spirit of God, may it be experienced among us today by the power of your Spirit. Help us to draw truth from your eternal Word, not just so that it informs our minds, but so that it transforms our hearts, that we might live that love in such a way to influence others that they might be saved. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody together said, amen. Amen. Now, I want you to remember that Paul's in jail when he's writing this. He's in a Roman prison, presumably a Roman prison, and he'd received word that this church was not only surviving, this church in Colossa, he receives word in that prison cell from the very Epaphras that had had his life changed through the preaching of Paul's message and had gone back home to Colossa to establish this church. Paul was learning, presumably from Epaphras, the incredible life and growth that was taking place at the church there at Colossae. Paul, of course, as we established last week, did not start the church at Colossae. Epaphras did. Paul had a very thriving and important and yet very persecuted ministry in Ephesus, a place where he indeed had planted the church there in Ephesus, one of the great and important cities of the Roman world. And Paul had preached the gospel, staying there longer than he did any other place. He planted a church around three years or so before he then moved on in his ministry. While he was there, Epaphras came over from Colossae for reasons that are unknown to us. So, by the way, did our friend Philemon. He managed to work his way at some point from his home in Colossa there to Ephesus. And both Epaphras and Philemon, came under the gospel preaching of the Apostle Paul. They heard the word of God, and they received the word of God. And the gospel was implanted in their life, and it changed them. And Epaphras especially got on fire, went back home, began to talk up the gospel to everyone around him, and pretty soon a church had started in his home. And it was from those humble beginnings that the church at Colossa began to grow. And at some point in the future, As Paul in prison is reunited with Epaphras in some way, Epaphras brings back news of everything that had happened in this church that Paul had never visited in a city presumably that Paul had never visited. So Epaphras brings Paul, as it were, good news about the good news and its incredible growth among the people who were saved and in Christ at Colossa. And that's got Paul very excited here as he begins his first and only letter that we know of to these people at Colossa. It's what leads him to begin this letter with what amounts to an extended time of praise and prayer. Today we're going to look at Paul's praise, his thanksgiving. Next week when we gather we'll look at how Paul prays for the church at Colossa. But here this morning in this passage that we read, it should be very apparent to you as it is to me that Paul's fired up about what the Lord's doing in this church, amen. He is excited to hear this good news about the good news that the gospel was not only growing in Colossae, it was spreading out from Colossae. You can see that again in verse six. The gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. So this is a word of praise, presumably and ostensibly, about not only the power of the gospel, but about the incredible spread of the gospel, about the work of the gospel. And you all know what I mean when I talk about the gospel. That's one of those words we talk about it a lot. I've defined it a lot over the years at Hillcrest. One of the most important of all biblical words, and yet probably, Uh, One of the misunderstood, most misunderstood of biblical words. We know that the word gospel means what? Say it out loud. Good news. Well, good news about what? That's where people tend to get tripped up. You know, the bottom line is, can I just be very simplistic this morning? The gospel is simply good news about Jesus Christ. You want the simplest definition of the gospel? Jesus is the gospel. Somebody say amen. Now, you gotta understand what that means. Because that encompasses, when I say Jesus is the gospel, I mean who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and what Jesus has promised to do when he comes again as we've sung about so powerfully this morning and puts everything that's wrong finally and forever back to the right. All of the identity of Jesus and the work of Christ on the cross through the resurrection and his ascension and his work at the right hand of God and in his coming again to take up a throne and a recreated new heaven and a new earth, all of that is what we mean by the good news, the good news of the life and work of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is the good news that even though we're sinners, God loves us anyway, and God has demonstrated his love by acting in grace to send his only begotten son to do a critically important work of dying in our place on the cross, shedding his blood as the payment for our sin, and God rose, raised him from the dead demonstrating his power and victory over sin. And God has drawn us through the person and work of Christ into an eternal and righteous relationship with himself forever and ever and ever that comes about simply by faith. That's basically what we mean when we talk about the good news, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That makes sense to everybody? Or I need to go through it again. If it makes sense, say amen. amen. All right. And it's important to remember that, by the way, because one thing the gospel is not is a simple set of rules and behavioral regulations. Everybody with me? I mean, the gospel is living truth about what God has done in the person and work of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Can I tell you what Epaphras didn't do when he got saved and went back to Colossa? He didn't try to change everybody's behavior. He didn't go back there and preach a list of ethical values. You guys do this and God will embrace you and like you. That's not what he did. And that's important to understand because sometimes, I still believe it's true today, well-intentioned churches can sometimes put the cart before the horse. And we can try to mold lost people into an image that we've made from the Bible about what a Christian can and should be as a condition not only of us accepting them, but of God accepting them. And can I say there's no good news in that? That's bad news because can't nobody do it. You You can't mold an unregenerate person into the likeness of Christ by changing his or her behavior, they're dead. In trespasses and sins, and dead men can't change themselves. That much I know. There is a supernatural need for resurrection in the life of somebody that's spiritually dead, and I'm just saying only the gospel can bring that about. So we make a huge mistake when we just preach values to lost people and say, just do these things, God will accept you, and our church will accept you too. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is living truth about what Christ alone can do for you. What our mission is, is to preach the gospel, encourage and make an appeal for people to surrender their life to the gospel, and then surrender those people to Jesus Christ and let the Spirit of God change necessary behavior. Amen. That's what we're supposed to be about. And that's why the gospel is good news, because that's what the gospel alone Can do, and because the gospel is living truth about a living Savior who has come that we might have life and have it more what abundantly. By definition, where the gospel is planted, the gospel is supposed to grow, and it is in Colossae, and that's why Paul's fired up here and happy. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, watch this. The kingdom of God is like the grain of a what? Of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, and yet when it's sown, it what? Grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus makes it very clear that kingdom growth, gospel growth, is God's divine purpose. He wants that to happen in your life individually and He wants it to happen in the life of His church universally and corporately. And that's what Paul heard was happening in these important days in the early church. He got this good news about the good news. The gospel was being preached and the gospel was bearing fruit among the people and the families and the church there at Colossae, increasing in influence, not only there, but spreading out from them throughout the then known world. Now, the question that we want to raise this morning with all of that as the backdrop is can that be said about your life, that the gospel has been implanted in your life, that the gospel has been heard and received in your life, and that Jesus has moved in and done a saving work, a radical work of transformation in your life conforming you to his own divine image so that you might be saved and have an eternal relationship with God? And is the gospel not only present and active and growing in you, but is it spreading out from your life? Is it infectious to the people around you in your family, in your neighborhood, at your work, people with whom you do life? How can you know that it is? Well, you know it by the same way Paul knew it was happening in Colossae. I want you to ask yourself three very important questions as we move through this text this morning. Question number one is simply this. Do I have a faith grounded in Christ? If you're gonna be a fruit bearing Christian where the gospel is increasing in growth and influence, this is primary question number one. This is where it all begins. This is a foundational, question that you must answer positively. Do I have a faith that's grounded in Christ? Because faith is the foundation of any gospel effectiveness. The Colossians surely had it and Paul rejoiced when he learned of it because he makes it clear in verse 3, we always thank God since we heard of your what? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And what is faith? Well, the Bible defines faith in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let's read that verse out loud together. Everybody together. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And, of course, the two key words there that you need to circle if you're taking notes this morning are the words assurance And conviction. If you're using a new international version of the Bible this morning, they translate those two words sure and certain. Faith is being sure of the things that we've hoped for and certain of the things that we have not yet seen with our eyes. In other words, the certainty comes in terms of our experience that we've had with the gospel through the eyes of our heart, even though we haven't seen those things finally with our eyes. We will one day in heaven, somebody say amen. But now we see, as the Bible says, through a glass darkly, through a mirror dimly, but we still see. And the sight that God gives us is enough to take the wishy-washiness away from faith so that we may know that we have eternal life. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that we have not seen. Man, we can know by faith that God has acted in history by sending His only Son to die in our place as payment for our sin, so that we might be forgiven of our sin and have an opportunity to become one of his children now and forevermore. Living on purpose, fulfilling the real purpose for which God created us, that can only come through the new birth by knowing Jesus and being changed by the presence of Jesus. And all of that happens not based on what you do, but based on what you believe about Jesus Christ. And that paints a picture here because faith is really two things. First of all, faith is what we believe, right? And as such, it becomes the basis of our salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. faith. That's Ephesians 2.8. Saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. The only bragging that's going to go on in heaven is bragging about what Jesus did that we might end up there. And faith is the means, not faith in ourselves, and see, that's very important because, I mean, in America, you have to ask the question, faith in what? I mean, Paul answers that question here in the way that he phrases the Thanksgiving. But Americans by nature tend to be a very religious people. It's just that the object of our focus is in all the wrong things. Every American worships something. So the question, and because we hear it all the time, well, you got to have faith, got to have faith. Well, faith in what? Faith in yourself, faith in your abilities, faith in your intellect, faith in your creativity, faith in your employer, faith in the government, oh Lord. (laughs) Faith in the markets, faith in the portfolio, faith in fate. You got to have faith, okay, but faith in what? I'm just saying this morning, faith is only as good as the dependability of whatever it is you're putting your faith in. What is the principal object of your faith here at the corner of Nine Mile and Guidey this morning on this Lord's Day? I mean, you can have faith in an airplane, but if that thing hadn't been serviced in 20 years, it might not be a very good outcome. You may put your faith in a dental surgeon, but if that guy or gal comes in inebriated, you might leave with a very crooked smile. Faith is only as good as the dependability of the object in which we place our faith. Where has your faith, the faith of your life about your future, been directed? The Colossians were fruitful because their faith was targeted. Paul says, I rejoice when I have heard or as I have heard about your faith. Qualify it, please, in Christ Jesus. Amen. He's very clear about where the object of their faith was. It wasn't in themselves or their own abilities or anything around them. It wasn't in the Roman emperor. It wasn't in their, their uh, primary uh, commercial objective. What in any of that stuff? It was a faith in Christ Jesus. I love Colossians three 5, uh, uh, Proverbs rather three five and six because this is a statement about faith. It's one of my great life verses. Many of you too remember it. In fact, let's just say it out loud together. Together, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path or he will direct your path that's just a statement of great faith because in that statement we're reminded that faith is not only what we believe trust in the lord which is what you have to do to have saving faith but faith is also how we live, in all your ways acknowledge him. So that's the second dimension of faith, It's what we believe, but faith is also how we live, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. The Bible says that, the just shall live by faith, shall live by faith. And so faith is both something that we possess and something that we express, the just shall live by faith. It's something that we believe and something that we do. And that's why the Colossians were bearing fruit, because they weren't just resting on what they believed about Jesus. They were openly living it through lives of obedience to the word of God. And that's why you should mark it down. Fruit-bearing faith is always working faith. We don't work to get God to accept us. That's simply by trusting what Christ has done. But once we're saved, we're to live out our faith in ways that are open and obvious. James will say that as a compliment to everything Paul teaches about being justified by faith. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It's a dead faith. It's a practically non-existent faith. So you know that you've had genuine believing faith by how you live your life. A life lived in obedience to the word of God and the, uh, and the will of God. So that's just another way of saying real faith is never unemployed. There's always full employment in the kingdom of Christ. Amen. It proves itself by what it does. And again, it raises the question, do you have a faith in the right object? Is your faith grounded, like the Colossians, in Christ alone. If you do, then it'll be a faith that bears fruit. Everybody hanging with me, say amen. It's the second question I want to ask you. If you're a fruit bearing disciple, do I have a faith grounded in Christ? Question number two, do I have a love for God's people? Do you love God's people? Now I'm kind of preaching to the choir this morning because if you didn't love God's people, you probably wouldn't be seated where you are this morning, right? Paul Hears about the gospel fruitfulness of the, Colossi, uh, the Colossians and he commends them not only for what he hears about their faith, but also for what he's heard about their love, particularly their love for one another and how that's impacting their community. Verse three and four, we always thank God since we heard not only of your faith, since we heard of the what? Love that you have for all the saints. In fact, it was the presence of this incredible brotherly love that primarily identified them as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what the Apostle John writes in 1 John, beginning chapter 2, verse 9. He says, whoever says he is in the light. Now, that simply means whoever claims to be saved, right? Walking in the light of Christ. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the what? In other words, it's a, it's a false confession because his absence of love proves the absence of the presence of Jesus in his life or hers. Verse 20 of chapter four, 1 John, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? Man, my grandmother told me never to call anybody a liar. And yet that's exactly what John said. In other words, it's a false testimony. And you can tell it by the absence of love. If there's no love for fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus, there is no presence of saving power in a person's life. This is why you need to be wary of anybody's testimony or their supposed testimony when by their actions, they demonstrate that they want nothing to do with the family of God. You cannot call yourself a Christian and want nothing to do with the people of God. If nothing else, that's the clear takeaway of what John says over and over again in 1 John. No, once you've received the unconditional love of God and the presence of Jesus Christ, who's demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Man, you'll have new spiritual eyes that have been opened to see others as God sees them. I'm just saying, when you're born again, everything about you changes, including the way that you look at people. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I mean, we're all saved because God loved us. Isn't that right? In spite of the fact that we were sinners hostile to God, not friendly with God, but openly hostile to God, and he saved us anyway. And when he does, he changes us from the inside out. His love now resides in the person who has genuinely been born again by faith. And because Christ lives in us, the love of Christ lives in us as well. And you can't hold back the love of God when it's inside you. Now, we see people as God sees them now, and that ought to change the way we relate to everybody that we know and something is just terribly wrong terribly terribly wrong when somebody claims to love God have been saved by God but will not love the people of God word had gotten to Paul that the Colossians loved each other without condition I mean there wasn't that kind of love going on in Corinth and he addresses that the people at Corinth loved each other with a selective kind of love they didn't love everybody and so they sequestered themselves. They got together in cliques and others were excluded. And so there was something that's just not right about the way that the Corinthians were living the gospel. And so 1 Corinthians becomes kind of a corrective letter. There's, no, there's none of this kind of rejoicing going on when you read 1 Corinthians because it's all just correction after correction after correction. But Paul didn't have to do that with the Colossians because their love went beyond sentimentality. It was open and obvious and without selection. Now, let me just say this morning that we're all gonna tend to gravitate towards certain people to do life with. We'll form deeper friendships with some than we will with others. We won't have the same emotional uh, connection with some that we'll have with others. We won't, in other words, live life with everybody equally. Is everybody following with me? You'll naturally gravitate and have deep, intimate relationships with some that you won't necessarily have with others. But we ought to love one another and serve one another and be willing to be there for one another unconditionally. That's the point here. Because of our common relationship with one another through this common faith that we have in Christ Jesus. Let me remind everybody, even Jesus stooped to wash the feet of Judas in the upper room. And so we ought to be willing to demonstrate love, even to people that we don't always like. And some people, would you not agree, but just hard to like some people. But we are obligated to love them. And that kind of love, can we just be honest, it doesn't come naturally and it doesn't come easily. But what I believe does come naturally to somebody that's generally been born again is the desire to love like that. You might admit it's hard to do, but you're going to want to do it. And you're going to want to make a difference, even in people's lives that don't love you back. That kind of love requires effort, man. You're talking about being intentional. You've got to be intentional. You've got to say, I will live my life like Jesus Christ in order to love like that. So in the same way that we're supposed to have a faith that works, can I just say this morning, God calls us to have a love that works as well. Energetic, as Paul wrote his introduction to the Thessalonians, he'll commend them in the same way for what he calls their their labor of love, a love that works. And the Colossians obviously had it. And I'm just saying, when you learn to love like that, intentionally serving others even when they don't serve you back, helping others who never lift the finger to help you in return, encouraging others who seem to make it their mission in life to jack up your life. I'll tell you what that is. You know what that is? Are you all still with me? Say amen. That's gospel fruit. That's what that is. And others will see it. And the gospel will grow because of it. I'm just saying, when you find a person that will love others unconditionally like that, one takeaway that you can can have about that person's life is you can know, man, the Spirit of God is alive in that person because they just consistently love no matter what. So Paul's point is that true salvation is a transformation not only of the mind and of the will, it's a transformation of the heart. God changes the way not only you see him and his plan for the world, and his plan for your life, but God changes the way that you see other people as well. So mark it down, we're saved by faith, but we're saved in order to love. So now abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? Love. Oh, by the way, faith, hope, and love. And that brings me to the third thing that you find repeated in the same way here in the first chapter of Colossians, that Paul singles out as remarkable in the life of these people that bore fruit, and that is, here's the question, how can I know that I'm like them? Is my hope in an eternal kingdom? Do I have a faith grounded in Christ? Do I have a love for God's people? Is my hope In an eternal kingdom, as opposed to my hope being in the here and now, all wrapped up in this present world. Paul says again in verse 3 We always thank God since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the what? Say it out loud. Of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, when you read these words properly, one of the things that you see is that hope is mentioned last because, according to the way Paul phrases it, it was their hope in this eternal kingdom, their hope in what Christ was going to do in the future that would last for all of eternity. It was that hope that formed the basis of their fruitful faith and their fruitful love there in Colossae. In other words, they they possess this growing faith and this active love because they possessed a hope in the promises of God. And that's why hope is very important, because hope kind of becomes the fertilizer that encourages the growth of just about every other part of your spiritual life. Now, when we talk about hope, of course, we're primarily focused on things that have not happened yet, the things that we look forward to as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the future part of our salvation, the eternal blessings and the eternal rewards that we all look forward to, a hope that's rooted Of course, the central aspect of our hope we've sung about this morning, what is the one critical element of our hope, apart from which no other element of our hope will ever be realized, it's the coming again of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom in the recreated new heaven and the new earth. That's the core of what the Bible calls Christian hope. Because if that doesn't happen, nothing else happens. Christ is coming again. And I've said many times, it's at the point when you forget that Jesus is coming back, you'll start to live like he's not coming back. And that's why you can never let the second coming get too far out from in front of you. In turn, you need to be able to see it every day. Man, we focus on the cross and we should. We focus on the empty tomb and we should. It was the last time you really focused on the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's the fabric of our hope. Man, when you look and long for Jesus to come again and to usher in the kingdom, and can I just say as an aside, it'd be okay if he came this afternoon with the pastor. I'd be great with it. All the bad goes away instantaneously for the most part. Amen. And when I think about that, man... It serves, or it ought to anyway, is this radical motivation for living the gospel today. And see, that's part of the problem. When you forget that Jesus could come back at any moment, it tends to have a dampening effect on your enthusiasm to live the gospel to its fullest today. That's why you can never forget, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And just as hope carries a measure of surety and assurance, so does hope. Uh, So does hope. Faith does, so does hope. It's not wishy washy. It's not cross your fingers, put it behind your back. That kind of hope, that's not biblical hope. Hope is the confident expectation, not only of understanding that God has made promises regarding our future as followers of Christ, but hope is the confident expectation that, that because God is the one who's made that promise, every one of those promises will one day be realized in the coming of Jesus Christ. It's an absolute assurance I love Philippians 1.6. I don't think it's in your notes, but I love it because it points to this very thing. Paul says as he introduces his letter to the Philippians, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That, brothers and sisters, is what we mean when we talk about biblical hope. I am confident that God has the power to finish In Christ, by his coming, what he has begun in me through the gift of faith. This is why God's promise to finish what he's started is what the writer to the Hebrews calls in Hebrews 6, a sure, circle the word, sure and steadfast what? Anchor of the soul. And this is why the international symbol for hope is a what? It's an anchor. That's right. The heart is the symbol of love. The anchor is the symbol of hope. And by that anchor, we see something that's solid, heavy, steadfast, absolutely secure. And that's important because without hope, there is no confident living. Without hope, there is no fruitful gospel impact. Because without hope, And what God has promised for all of our eternity without that kind of hope, the only thing that you and I are left with is the here and now. And if all we have is the here and now, we're all in a boatload of trouble because there's very little good about the here and now. The world's got nothing to offer practically but trouble, brokenness, disease, death, division, This is why you can understand that the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all men the most miserable. Because there's not much to hope for this side of heaven unless your hope is grounded in the kingdom of heaven. No, real hope, biblical hope looks forward and it finds its confidence in the promises of God that there is a better day to come, there is a better life to come. Look at 1 Peter chapter one, beginning in verse three. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living what? A living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept or guarded in heaven for you. That's just quite a remarkable statement. Do you see any assurance in that verse? Anything wishy-washy about that statement? Any waffling going on in that statement right there? That that inheritance that Christ has promised me, that gift that he will finish what he started in me at the coming of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is kept in heaven, guarded by God for eternity. Man, what I see when I read that statement is absolute certainty that the promise of that perfect tomorrow ought to motivate me to live the gospel in a very imperfect today. And where there is the absence of hope, there will tend to be a very anemic gospel effectiveness. That's why you gotta keep looking ahead. We fix our eyes, the Bible says, not on what is seen, the here and now, but on what is unseen. For that which we see is temporary, but what we cannot see with our eyes, but have seen with our heart, thank God, is eternal forever and ever and ever. So we fix our gaze on the eastern sky with the absolute assurance that Christ is coming again. And when he does... He will transform everything from shadow to sight forever and ever and ever. I love this little passage of scripture because what you have in it is what's often called the trinity of Christian virtue. John Calvin called faith, hope, and love the briefest definition of true Christianity. And I think that's true. What does it mean to be a Christian? I have a faith grounded in Christ. I have a love for God's people that's rooted in the love of Christ. And I have a hope, not in the here and now, but in an eternal tomorrow and in an inheritance that God has promised will never fade away where these things are present in a person's life the gospel always bears fruit this is God's eternal word and all God's people said amen